Well, it's always good um, to begin these times with some manner of apology. The technological failure that just happened is probably my fault, lyrically. I just messed up the entire worship team. Um, But my motto is, blame the guy on sabbatical, okay? So, (laughs) Daniel's not here, and it's all his fault. So... (laughs) I'm sure it is. I'm sure he's, he's not here this morning, is he? <laughs> we could discipline him right on the spot. Um, do you want to draw your attention to something on the back of your worship guide where you have an opportunity to jot down some notes as God speaks to you this morning? Uh, this is the need for our children's ministry uh, to add two classrooms. Two classrooms for about 36 grand left for us to raise. Uh, uh, an outstanding opportunity to serve our children and a much-needed one. Our, we have a couple classrooms that are un, unmanageable. Now, the elders and trustees have asked that we might trigger this uh, building uh, at the end of August, which means we need to have this money raised this week. Um, and I know that seems like a lot to raise in a week. Somebody did the math. It's about 35 bucks a person, they say. 50 bucks a person, maybe. So... Uh, Some of us can do much more than that, and we should. Some of us will do less. But if you would consider making a gift this week, bring it next Sunday at the latest, and just designate on your check CM fund or CM building, something like that. We'll make sure that it gets to children's ministry. We should be able to start the process of um, dragging that new modular classroom, that set of new modular classrooms onto the property um, right away then. So... So that is really important, and I know it's been off the radar screen for most of us, but will you pray about how you can help this week with a financial gift towards that? That would be a huge help. Uh, We're going to continue our study this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you had your Bibles, I'd invite you to open there. Just the last few verses, these verses strike right at the heart of the elders' priority for this year, which is that we would learn how to be the church. Um, and today we'll wrap up this chapter that focuses so much on this, summarize some of the vital points Paul has been pressing us on. As you find your way there, let's pray together. Seek God's favor on this time in his word. God, I think how, how very faithful you are to your word. I, I know it in my own life, and in, in these times I see you be far more faithful to your word than I deserve or I expect. Um, you're very kind to us. When we open this book, it just like your kindness comes off the page at us. And you, by your spirit, speak to us about our lives. You show us who you are. And we'd ask that kindness in these next minutes that we might meet with you and hear from you and by your spirit have grace and strength to live for you as your people. So take pleasure in it, God, and send your spirit now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to start in verse 27. (laughs) Magic. Technological magic. Thank you, God. Thank you, guys. Uh, now you are members. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church 
first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. He starts that with this kind of summary statement of what he's been teaching the church in Corinth and teaching us. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This is the great and beautiful tension that is the church. We are collectively the body of Christ, yet individually we are members of it. The church, Paul's been showing us through this analogy of the body, like a physical body, that the church is a collective reality. We together are the body of Christ, the church. I am not the church. You are not the church. We are the church. The church is an inescapably corporate thing. It's a together thing. It is most definitely not an individual thing, yet individually we are members of it. Every individual matters. Every individual has a unique spirit-fueled contribution to make to the church. And when Paul uses throughout chapter 12 this imagery of the body of Christ, there are several things he's been emphasizing. When we think of, when we use the language of the body of Christ, these are the things that we mean. These are the things that should come to our mind. When we say we're the body of Christ, it means that we belong together. Remember a couple verses back, he was talking about the church like a body. He says, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. We are inseparably bound up in this thing called the body of Christ. We cannot opt out of it. He says just just because we think we're not apart doesn't mean we're not apart. We are inseparably woven into the fabric of the church. I, I think of it kind of like family. You can be a dysfunctional family member... Or you can be a good family member, but you are always a family member. You can't opt out of family. You know, it's a blood connection. You may not speak, you may not get along, but you are. And the church, in this sense, is like that. Um, You'll always be part of the church. It's what you were saved into. This is where you belong. This is where your great contribution is going to be made. So by the body of Christ, we mean we belong together. By the body of Christ, we mean that we need each other. In verse 21, it says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. When we talk about being the body of Christ, it means we need each other. There's a uh, former Navy pilot 
His name is Charlie Plum. He flew in Vietnam. And he tells this story. It's a fascinating story that sheds light on this, this part of the body. He says, recently I was sitting in a restaurant in Kansas City. A man about two tables away kept looking at me. I didn't recognize him. A few minutes into our meal, he stood up and walked over my table, looked down at me, pointed his finger in my face and says, You're Captain Plum. I looked up and I said, Yes, sir, I'm Captain Plum. He said, You flew fighter jets in Vietnam. You were on the aircraft carrier Kitty Hawk. You were shot down. You parachuted into enemy hands and spent six years as a prisoner of war. I said, How in the world did you know all that? He said, because I packed your parachute. He said, I was speechless. I staggered to my feet, held out a very grateful hand of thanks. The guy came up with just the proper words. He grabbed my hand, he pumped my arm, and he says, I guess it worked. (laughs) Yes, sir, indeed it did, Plum said. And he said, I didn't get much sleep that night. I kept thinking about that man. I kept wondering what he might have looked like in a Navy uniform. A Dixie cup hat, a bib in the back, bell-bottom trousers. I wonder how many times I might have passed him on board the Kitty Hawk. I wonder how many times I might have seen him and not even said, Good morning, or how are you, or anything. Because, he says, you see, I was a fighter pilot, and he was just a sailor. How many hours did he spend on that long wooden table in the bowels of that ship weaving the shrouds and folding the silks of those chutes? I could have cared less until one day my parachute came along and he packed it for me. And so he asked this question, who's packing your parachute? Theologically speaking, biblically speaking, spiritually speaking, it's the people in this room. They are packing your parachute. It's the people in your small group. And one day you'll need that parachute. One day you'll need them. Perhaps we should say better, one day you'll realize how much you need them. It might be in the waiting room at some hospital. It might be in a living room wondering where the next mortgage payment will come from. It might be on the phone wondering if your child is safe. Someday you're going to need these people who are packing your shoes. The easily forgotten reality, though, is that we need each other every day. This day, we need each other. Together, we are the body of Christ. Today, only together can we be the church to a watching world. We need each each other every single day. This day. When we say we're the body of Christ, it means that we recognize that we need each other. We have each other's back. That we are doing life together as the church. When we say we are the body of Christ, we mean that we are not like each other. We're not all alike. Back in verse 18, it says, As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, 
as he chose. It says, goes on to say, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. I don't know about your small group, but my small group is a ragtag group of people that other than Christ would have no reason on earth to be sitting in that living room together every week praying for each other and caring for each other. I mean, these people just, they are diverse. They are diverse in their employment. They're diverse in their season of life. They are diverse in their personalities. They are most definitely diverse in their spiritual gifts, how the Spirit uses us. There's one who can teach. There's another that can serve. There's another that can organize. There's another that can sing. There's another that prays with great faith. We are diverse. We're not like each other. We're not supposed to be. That's not the body. The body is not like each other. We like each other, but we're not like each other. Be clear about that. So when we say that we are the body of Christ, we mean that we are not all alike. We're diverse by the work of the Spirit. By the body of Christ, we mean that we are undivided. Back verse 24, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. God designed the church to be undivided. That means we refuse to turn on each other. We refuse to turn from each other. We refuse to gossip about each other, to avoid one another, to remain unreconciled with each other. We are designed by God to be one, no division in the church. And as the body of Christ, we do the hard work to protect that. A few years back, there was um, a group of German orchestra violinists that actually sued for a pay raise because they played more notes per concert than the flutes, oboes, and trombones did. You can imagine the happy environment that created in that orchestra, right? The church is like that orchestra. There isn't room here for for prima donnas or people who keep track of notes. When we say we're the body of Christ, it means we are designed by God to be undivided. And we will fight for that. We will protect that. When we say we're the body of Christ, we mean we care deeply for one another. The last couple of verses from last week says, God has so composed the body that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And this is where I could hand out some serious attaboys to our small groups. I mean, small groups do this at Northway. There is some serious suffering together that's gone on and is going on in our small groups. There are late night phone calls, there are urgent conversations, there are open homes, there are shared cars, there are shared cash, there are endless meals, there's prayer, there are tears. Suffering 
is shared in these little bands of believers we call small groups. And there's some serious rejoicing that goes on in our small group. There are celebrations and gifts and showers and thank yous and attaboys and hallelujahs and parties. Lots of parties. We're good at that. Um, We care deeply for each other as the body of Christ. That's what we do. That's what it means for us to be the body of Christ. When we say we are the body of Christ... When we say we're going to be the church, it means that we belong together, we need each other, we are different from each other, yet we are undivided and we care deeply for each other. When we talk about the body of Christ, that's what we mean. When we say be the church, that's right at the heart of what it means to be the church. And in our, in our text today, the second phrase that we want to look at is he says, you, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church apostles, prophets, teachers, all these different folk, all these different gifts. But notice that he says it again there. God has appointed in the church. This is God's appointment. You have the place of service that you have, I have the place of service that I have in the church here at Northwake by God's sovereign choice. And Paul, in this, in this short chapter, says it over and over and over. He says, in one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. The spirit placed us in the body. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. God so composed the body. And God, in our verse we're looking at today, God has appointed in the church. It's God's design. Do you ever wonder why Daniel Cresswell can sing? Or why Jeff Doyle can lead? Or Jake Mason can administrate? Why Greg Bowers is so incredibly hospitable? Why Rob Craig loves lost people more than he loves you? Why Stephanie, why Stephanie Jackson can leap tall buildings in a single bound? It's by God's design. Okay. Unique gifts brought to the body. His good design for the church. It is, after all, what we call the manifestation of His Spirit. God gets the credit for this. It's His design. It's the Spirit who's doing the work, not us independently. Um, Do we have that, guys, or do we not? We do have it. Think of it like this. Do we have sound with this?
apart from the shameless plug for the 2012 Passat, um, see, the little boy does nothing. It's the Father who has the power. When the body of Christ is built up through you, it's not really you, not ultimately you, not finally you. You have a part to play. You're the conduit through which the power to build up the body is poured. But it's the Father, by the Spirit, manifesting himself through you and your little thing that you do. Okay? So, just as that little boy could do nothing without the intervention of the Father, so we can do nothing in the building up of the body except by the Father through the Spirit. These gifts, they are manifestations of the Spirit. One writer put it this way. He said, spiritual things are not to be boasted of. One can boast of worldly riches And the paper money will not fly away unspent, nor will the amount magically decrease. But the spiritual riches you boast of vanish with the telling. All that's good in this room, all that's good in these relationships, all the mutual encouragement, strengthening ministry that goes on in this collection of people, the way that we need each other and belong to each other and care for each other, God gets the props for all of that. All of it. It says that God appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. There is, as you read through these lists scattered throughout the New Testament of the gifts of the Spirit, the manifestations of the Spirit, There's a great diversity. There are eight listed here. Um, The first three seem to refer more to people. Um, Then there's some miraculous, couple miraculous gifts, then a couple of not so miraculous gifts, then there's another pretty miraculous gift. Um, Some of these gifts seem pretty enduring, they're going to consistently manifest themselves in that person. Some of the other ones seem more episodic. I mean, no one heals all the time on demand. No one does miracles all the time on demand. But God may well choose to manifest himself to bring healing through one miraculously, to to do a a miraculous work through another. Um, This list has eight gifts. Some others have nine or seven or five. And the order changes in in the lists. they end up kind of like this, all jumbled up. There's no system to the lists of gifts in the New Testament. And that's a pretty complete list. Administration, hospitality, giving, tongues. Um, the one that's not on there is interpretation of tongues. Leadership, discernment, knowledge, healing, evangelism, pastor, service, mercy, miracles, apostle, wisdom, prophecy, faith, exhortation, helps, um, There are about 20, maybe 21 that occur if you list them all in the New Testament. But there are no definitions. God did not include like little footnotes that explain exactly how these gifts work in the body, little pictures. None of that. 
So it becomes very difficult for us to sort out exactly what these terms mean. For instance, um, there's, a, there's a gift that's rendered in the translation that I'm using this morning, administration. The gift of administration. If you chase that word back, it actually has to do with the guy that piloted or steered a ship. Think master and commander, okay? That's what that word has in mind. Not when we say administrator, that sounds more like bean counter. Not exactly what they have in mind. This has to do more with someone who can guide the church and give direction to the church. So it's hard, it's really hard to sort out exactly what these things mean. Um, And the lists are probably not exhaustive. They're probably, if you think of a gift as a manifestation of the Spirit through someone for the good of the body, there's probably um, musical gifts, hospitality gifts, the gift of fixing things, um, the gift of encouragement, Uh, The gift of working with teens and two-year-olds, those are manifestations of the Spirit, by the way. People who can work with those uh, groups of people. I think these are more like buckets. Big categories of the shape that these gifts might take rather than precise, detailed, exhaustive lists. Um, And then, of course, we always see these kind of lists and we wonder, well, which one's mine? How do I figure out what mine is? There are no little inventories in the appendix of your Bible given to us by God to figure it out. They they exist. They're not given to us by God. They're people's best best efforts at trying to sort this stuff out. Here's one that um, I had years ago. For $2.50, you can buy this spiritual gift inventory. And uh, they were trying to sell it to me as a pastor to use with y'all. And it says... um, I'm rushing this letter to you along with a brochure detailing all these materials and your free spiritual gifts inventory. It's a quick, simple-to-use tool that can help you and your members discover their spiritual gifts in as little as 20 minutes. That's right. Now, you know we're in trouble when they say, that's right. Your members can learn in just 20 minutes what others have a lifetime to discover. I I assume they mean have taken a lifetime to discover. So 20 minutes, you can figure out what your spiritual gift is. Um, In 20 minutes, you might begin to think about what spiritual gifts there are and what one. You're not going to figure it out. Um, It's not worthless. It's worth probably the 250 that they charge you for it. Um, You can take them for free online. We'll give you a free one in our new members class. Um, But the fact that the New Testament never even raises the question, what's my gift, makes me think that shouldn't be our big emphasis. New Testament just, it doesn't even ask, all these lists, it never asks the question. Um, And I ran across an insight that I thought was really helpful, really wise. It comes from uh, Pastor John Piper. He says, I think it would be fair to say that you shouldn't bend your mind too much trying to label your spiritual gift before you use it. That is, 
Don't worry about whether you can point to prophecy or teaching or wisdom or knowledge or healing or miracles or mercy or administration, etc., etc., and say, that's mine. The way to think is this. The reason we have spiritual gifts is so that we can strengthen other people's faith. Here is someone whose faith is in jeopardy. How can I help him? Then do or say what seems most helpful. If the person is helped, then you may have discovered one of your gifts. If you warned him of the folly of his way and he repented, then perhaps you have the gift of warning. If you took a walk with her and said you knew what she was going through and lifted her hope, then perhaps you have the gift of empathy. If you had them over to your home when they were new and lonely, then perhaps you have the gift of hospitality. We must not get hung up on naming our gifts. The thing to get hung up on is, are we doing what we can to strengthen the faith of the people around us? I think he's dead on. I think he's at the heart of the matter. How do you find your gift? The Spirit seems to make himself most manifest in acts of service by hearts that are humble and in glad submission to Him, considering others around them more important than yourself. That's where the Spirit loves to manifest Himself, in humble, willing servants. That will be more helpful, more reliable than an inventory. When the Spirit manifests Himself, and the body is built up, the best indicator of your spiritual gift is the affirmation of the body. So when you serve someone, do they affirm your service? Is that a consistent pattern? You see God using you. That may well be your your. Spiritual bucket might be service. For instance, if you think you have the gift of teaching and no one except your grandma affirms you, poke around in a different bucket for the good of us all, okay? Please. If, if grandma's the only one who comes up and says, that was wonderful, Johnny, you know, Look for broad affirmation from the body about your spiritual giftness, not just from grandma. Is the Spirit manifesting Himself through you so that the body is noticeably built up in some way? Where the body is affirming the Spirit's work through you. In humble service... The Spirit makes Himself manifest. Okay. Back to our, our passage again. He picks up, after he lists all these gifts down in verse 29, he says, um, with a series of questions, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The implied answer is, No, no, we don't all have the same manifestation of the Spirit. It's going to look radically different. If I just go down this row, it's going to be different. 
There is to be no uniformity in the body. Unity, yes. Uniformity, no. We're to have uniformity of doctrine, of what we believe together, shared belief in the scriptures, but diverse manifestation of the Spirit. We are to be radically diverse. I ran across um, this tract a long time ago. It's called The Gift of the Holy Spirit. And it says, millions have received this experience. Have you? And if you read through, it has a lot of really helpful things to say. But one of the things that it says that's not as helpful is that the initial mark of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life is consistently speaking in tongues. It says, tongues is a uniform evidence of the manifestation of the Spirit in the life of a Spirit-filled believer. Everyone should manifest this, the Spirit in this way. Um, this is exactly what Paul is not saying. Okay? This is the opposite of what Paul is saying. He says it clearly. Do all speak with tongues? No. We're not all apostles. We're not all teachers. We're not all going to speak in tongues. No. There is no single evidence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer except the fruit of the Spirit. That would be uniform. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things we should be uniform in. We're all growing in these things, seeing all these things manifest in each one of us. But there is no uniformity of giftedness, only unity fueled by radical spirit-given diversity. So some will speak in tongues as a manifestation of the Spirit. Not all. Some will interpret. Not all. Some will teach. Not all. Paul closes um, our passage with this statement. It's actually a command. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. Earnestly desire them. And this raises a couple of puzzling questions. What are the higher gifts? Um, Because I thought that God designed the body so that the weaker members had the same honor, greater honor even than the ones that didn't need that honor. So it was kind of a level playing field. How are some of them higher, greater, some of your Bibles will say. And as we get into chapter 14, in a a few weeks, we'll see perhaps what he's looking forward to. And that's the idea that there are some gifts, by virtue of their intelligibility, um, their ability to bring truth to the body, that are more needed in the body for edification than some others. Um, The ability to proclaim God's truth to the body, as we'll see in in chapter 14. Um, But the ranking here is not to be considered as one of superiority. One is better than another. It's not a ranking in that sense. The ranking just disappears after the first three people, and we don't know why except that doesn't seem to be Paul's main point, that these gifts are all ranked 
in descending order of importance. But he does want us to desire these gifts that build up the body most powerfully. And that raises another question. How do you desire a gift that God composes, God assigns, God appoints, God does? How are we supposed, how do we desire that when God determines it? And the answer to that is yes. So, that was helpful. Um, You know, you're up against our responsible choice and God's sovereignty again. So there's a, there's a sense in which, yes, God determines, and yes, we would desire, but maybe there's another angle here that's helpful, and I'm going to warn you, because I couldn't find any commentary that said this, okay? So be warned. This could really be a bad idea, but I don't think it's a really bad idea. Um, it's not a heretical idea. The elders all have their pens out. Um, maybe when he talks about um, are asking for certain gifts, are desiring for certain gifts. It's not necessarily about just me. But I'm asking for these gifts for the church. I think the language will permit it here. The, the context may not back that as strongly as it could, but maybe it means that we would desire these um, great teaching gifts, great prophetic gifts, um, for our church, not so much just for me, that I would be that, that I would do that, but that I'm praying for that be manifest in the church. Uh, it'd do our church a world of good to pray for spirit-anointed teaching and gifted teachers in our church. Um, I think that would be good. When you drive by, most of us have suffered in a church where that was not the case, where you had non-spirit-gifted teachers You know what I'm talking about. And a lot of churches suffer that. There are good-hearted people without teaching abilities, gifts given to them by the Spirit, who are leading churches in the Word, and it's a mess. So when you're driving by the umpteen churches between here and your house, a great thing to pray for other churches is that God would bring to them Spirit-anointed teachers who are faithful to the Word. So you can pray that for our church. You can pray that for me. But you can pray that for other churches as well, that this would be a beautiful expression of that. And it may be that that's how our desire is supposed to be manifest, for the church, not necessarily just for me. Let me close with this thought. It's a continuation of what I shared with you earlier from John Piper. He says, I really believe that the problem of not knowing our spiritual gifts is not a basic problem. More basic is the problem of not desiring very much to strengthen other people's faith. Human nature is more prone to tear down than it is to build up. The path of least resistance leads to grumbling and criticism and gossip, and many there be that follow it. But the gate is narrow. And the way is strewn with obstacles, which leads to edification and the strengthening of faith. So the basic problem is becoming the kind of person who wakes up in the morning, thanks God for our great salvation, and then says, Lord, how I want to strengthen people's faith today. Grant that at the end of of this day, somebody will be more confident of your promises, more joyful in your grace, because I crossed his or her path. 
The reason I say becoming this kind of person is more basic than finding out your spiritual gift is that when you become this kind of person, the Holy Spirit will not let your longings go to waste. He will help you find ways to strengthen the faith of others. And that will be the discovery of your gifts. So let's apply ourselves to becoming the kind of people more and more who long to strengthen each other's faith. So are you willing this morning to let the Spirit manifest Himself through you as He pleases for the strengthening of this family, this church, this body? Will you do that with your glad cooperation, not your resistance or suggestions on how God ought to do it, but just glad submission to the Spirit? Are you willing to let the Spirit use you for the good of the body of Christ? First and foremost, the folks in this room, your church family, are you willing to be useful in God's hands? Maybe you've been holding back or holding on to something that's been holding you back. Maybe you've been badly wronged or hurt by the church. Maybe even this church. You've been overlooked and maligned and talked about and ignored and misunderstood and maybe even betrayed. Or maybe you're in school and you're going to serve God like a monster when you get out of school. You don't have time now. Friend, you may never get out of school. Some people never escape school. This may, be, this may be the only window God grants you to serve. And the body of Christ waits for you to serve, hopes for you to serve, needs you to serve. Today, as we close our service, I just want to invite you, if God's prompting you about a radical availability to be useful to him, to strengthen the faith of those in this church or maybe in a church around the world, that you'd come during this response time as our team leads us and, and just bow down before God and offer your life to him down here in prayer. Um, it's our honor and privilege that the Spirit would manifest him through us for the good of the body. Let's bow in prayer and the team's going to come lead us in worship as we close. Father, in this room is the body of Christ. One, yet many. In varying degrees of cooperation and frustration. Um, oh God, today we want to we wanna all be in glad submission to you. We want to lay down our frustrations and our hurts and our ignorance, our sin. Really, that's the thing that keeps us. Our sin, our unwillingness to trust you if we offer it all for you for the good of someone other than ourselves. And God, I pray now for each and every one of us that you would move us 
to set our lives apart for the good of the church and for her message to go to our neighbors and and to the world. That we'd be willing to say yes to however you want to use us. Whatever that might look like. So God, hear our prayers now. Accept our worship. We offer this in the name of Christ, by the Spirit. Amen. If you'll stand, let's worship God with our response.